Acts chapter 9. The kingdom is advancing. The church is spreading from Jerusalem to Samaria in the north. It's reached the Ethiopian eunuch who will take the gospel south now into Africa. And now we have this great enemy of the church breathing out threats and murder. Our text begins. And he's about to encounter the grace of God. As we sang in several of these songs of conversion, we're going to see this great transformation that grace brings about in the life of a persecutor of the church. Conversion. The word means to change something for a new use or purpose. Converting furniture is a popular hobby. Some people can take a chest of drawers and make it into a a vanity with a sink. Others can take an old door from some old barn or building and make it into a, a tabletop, perhaps, or a fancy sliding barn door in your home. When I lived in the sticks of Louisiana, it was not uncommon to see an old refrigerator outside laying on its back. And if you lifted the doors up, you'd see the refrigerator was filled with dirt. The refrigerator had been converted into a worm farm. So with all the fishing that would take place down there, they would kind of grow their worms in the refrigerator and you'd lift up the door and dig down into that dirt and get some worms and off you'd go. Something for you to consider for your front yard here in town. Conversion has at its core radical change a new purpose, a new reason for existence, a new use. And there is no more radical change than one who goes from being a sinner destined for judgment to a saint destined for joy. That's the change that occurs in our text. And stamped on that change from judgment to joy is this new purpose. Saul begins expressing his purpose. He's breathing it out. Much like in the preaching, when you really start getting going, sometimes the spit flies, right? Or your dog can breathe out threats. When somebody comes to the door and the growling starts deep within, that's the language here. It's this kind of guttural noise of just fuming anger. He has a purpose, and he's now had that purpose signed and stamped by the Sanhedrin so that he pretty much has a free pass to go after the followers of Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. Weed out and eliminate those who are followers of the way. But as you'll see, he's going to be repurposed. He's going to be converted Because God is saying, no, I have a plan. He is my chosen instrument. The same sharpness and the same zeal of this Pharisee who hated the church would exercise all of that zeal and passion for the church. He'd be repurposed. And in our text, Luke unfolds this conversion story. On one hand, this story of conversion is unique. It's a pivotal moment in the church's history. It involves a key character, a key enemy of the church, who would become a key instrument and voice for the church. This persecutor turned preacher would be an apostle with a significant place in the history of the plan of redemption. So yes, it is a unique story in some ways. But in other ways, this story of conversion is like every story of conversion that has ever happened. You have a story of conversion if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So we can say 
with Saul, we all were rebels against God. Oh, maybe not in the same manner as Saul or to the same visible extent. We weren't killing people who followed Jesus, but like Paul, we were rebels against the kingdom of God. Like Paul or Saul, we were all arrested by God's grace. We sang that testimony in that song that's actually a prayer from the Valley of Vision. We sing it, O great God. And in that prayer, we recognize we were blinded by our sin and had no ears to hear the voice of God. But then God acted on us in his grace and mercy and showed us our need to be saved. We were all arrested by God's grace. Now again, it may not have been by a blinding light as it was for Saul and a audible voice from heaven, but we were no less arrested in our progress away from God and turned to him. And we, like Saul, were all repurposed for the kingdom's advance. Oh, we don't call ourselves apostles, but we call ourselves witnesses. And just as Saul was asked to represent the name of Christ to the nations of the world, so are we. And you may live in Oak Grove or Buckner or Lee Summit or Kansas City or down in Belton or Lee Summit, Blue Springs and Independence and, and everywhere. That, that's our little corner of the world where we go to bear the name of Jesus Christ today and throughout this week. That's our purpose. So our conversion story isn't that unlike Saul's. And I want this to be the theme of our study this morning. We have a conversion story, and we must be able to tell that story. You will hear this account here given by Luke. Paul will give it two times later in Acts. So we, we will understand that this is a common tool in Paul's belt of being a witness. He will go to this often. He will simply tell the story of how God changed him. And to help you be able to tell your story, I want you to use this text as, as kind of a template, as a guide to follow. Maybe you've never thought of telling your story of conversion before. Maybe you're not sure you have a story of conversion. This text will show you what that looks like. So let's consider the conversion of Saul in three chapters with this goal in mind, being able to write our own story of conversion in those same three chapters. Do any of you remember the radio program called Unshackled? Let me see your hands. I know, oh, okay, a pretty good crowd. I, I don't know if you still find it or not. I'm sure you can on the World Wide Web. Uh, it'd be interesting to go back and hear some of those stories. Each episode would tell a conversion story, a story of being bound by sin and being set free. And so you'd often hear the text from John, if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed. Often they were stories of those who lived a reckless life of rebellion, crime, hedonism. Then they're marvelously saved by the grace of God and go on to live a dramatically different life of serving the Lord. It's a conversion, a repurposing, a salvation story. But my story of conversion looked or sounded a little different than the unshackled stories. I was living as a pretty good kid in a Christian home, attending Sunday school and church, and even in a Christian school. I too was marvelously saved, but simply went on living as a good kid in a Christian home and attending Sunday school and church and even attending the Christian school. But understand how the unshackled story and my story, and it may sound like yours, 
are indeed different, but they too are actually very much the same. My story differed from unshackled in the manifestations of a sinful heart. The actions and behaviors may have been more or less expressive of the rebellion against God. But the stories are the same in their theological reality. All people are sinners facing the judgment of God. In Adam, all people have said no to God's benevolent rule over them and said, I will rule my own heart. And the stories are the same because God was doing the saving work. God was in mercy drawing men to repentance and faith and rewarding them with the lifelong treasuring of Jesus Christ. I want us to look at our text this morning and see this conversion story without dwelling on how it's different from ours any longer or thinking that my transformation conversion story needs to be as dramatic as an unshackled program. But having kind of established your story is dramatic. You were a God hater and now you're a God lover. You were a sinner bound in slavery to sin, and now you are unshackled, you're set free. And while your life may not have looked like a prodigal son's life, living in blatant open rebellion and wickedness, the heart of blatant rebellion and wickedness was in you and needed to be changed. I want us to look at our text and see the description of sin that is common to us all so that we can write chapter one of our story, which is before God saved me. Before God saved me. You see, you might need this story of conversion, your story of conversion, and it might be easily inserted, more easily than you think. When people simply even ask questions like, well, I I don't even know what you mean by Christianity. What's that all about? And you could explain that through biblical texts, which would be valid. You could just start with the existence of God. That would be valid. Or you could start with your story, which could incorporate all of those things. And you could explain what it means to be a Christian, not as kind of observable theological facts, but in the form of a story. And it unfolds here before us when we see this first chapter, before God saved me. What sin do we see that would help us write our story? Well, again, we're not trying to look exactly at what Saul was doing because most of you haven't been breathing out threats of murder of those who go to church. But what do we see in the heart of Saul? In verse 1, we remember Saul is breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he goes to the high priest. Now that's just kind of historical background to help us understand Paul or Saul is this Pharisee of Pharisees. He's committed to the law, and he hates those who violate it. And he sees this Jesus of Nazareth and all of his followers as violators of the law, as heretics, and he's going to eradicate them. Looking at this pharisaical life of Saul, we see deep in the heart of Saul what is actually in all of our hearts needing to be rescued, and that is the sin of self-righteousness. With the apostle, we could say, before God saved me, I was self-righteous. I did good for my sake to make me look good. It may have worked that I funneled myself into a religious system that, that hung out for me the idea that good works would merit me eternal life. 
But I can't blame a religious institution for that system. It was, it was in my heart. I, I strove for a righteousness to be able to boast and say, I am a good person. If you ever talk much about the gospel to lost people, you will be amazed at the consistency of a response from an unbeliever to be able to say, no matter what they've done, no matter what sin they would acknowledge, that they are basically a good person. It will come up again and again. The more you shake the gospel sieve, the more it will kind of rise and you'll be left with this response of, why do I need to be saved? I'm pretty much a good person. Oh, I know I've done some bad things, but, but I've kind of worked my way back from that. I'm a good person. Self-righteousness. Our story begins there. Someone who is doing evil things, and in their mind, they are logging them as good and virtuous things. It's the blindness and the self-deception of self-righteousness. The prophet Isaiah would take this category of sin. And I say category because we think of sin as doing all the bad things, but doing good actions from a sinful heart, the prophet says that too is considered as filthy rags. You're not dressed in pure white robes of holiness. Even though you've done good things, if it's to make you look good, then it's counted as sin, the sin of self-righteousness. And here it is fleshed out for us in a story One of these Pharisees who was going about trying to please God with his own standard of righteousness rather than simply trusting in the righteousness which Christ has accomplished. Saul or Paul would go on to explain that very pursuit in his letter to the Romans that the Jews were bent on accomplishing righteousness in their own way instead of throwing themselves in faith on the mercy of God and saying, I need the righteousness of Christ. We see self-righteousness and say with this apostle Paul, yes, I was self-righteous, but we also look at the text and realize we must say, I was rejecting Jesus. Saul went to the high priest to ask for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's looking for these followers of Jesus. Following Jesus has become known as the way. I don't know if they built that exactly on Jesus' teaching in John 14 when he said, I am the way. And one of the disciples said, we don't, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know what you're saying. And his point was, there is only one way, Jesus. He is the one who has the truth. He is the way to life. You cannot get to God unless you come by faith through Jesus. But Saul is rejecting that. Not just rejecting passively, but actively. He's persecuting those who will say Jesus is the way to heaven. Saul was saying in his heart, I am self-righteous and I am rejecting Jesus. Hunting down the followers of Jesus. If they identified with Jesus and that truth, then great risk would fall on them. They might be bound, men or women, and taken back to Jerusalem. And we can kind of fill in the blanks there, depending on how their trial before the Sanhedrin goes, as did Stephen's. Chapter 1 is before God saved me. Think about how you would tell chapter 1 of your story. What was your life characterized by before God saved you? Your story will be unique. You're not on a road to Damascus. You may not be a religious zealot. But are you saying, I'm a good person? 
I do good things. I'm better than other people. Perhaps you're rejecting Jesus, not not feeling like you're shaking your fist at him, but you, you don't need that life. You're finding satisfaction in the pursuit of a vocation, in the life of family and friends. You don't need God. There are lots of ways to manifest self-righteousness and the rejection of Jesus. And some of them look like a pretty comfortable, enjoyable, fun kind of life. But understand at its core, it's life apart from God and his salvation. How would you tell your story? You see, I can tell a story of being self-righteous and rejecting Jesus, even though on the outside, no one would have thought of me as as a sinner or a bad person. My story isn't I ran with a gang and dealt drugs and weapons and gloriously saved, you know, out of that life. Nope. I ran with kids that ran in the hallways at church and rode our bikes through people's flower gardens, and I was gloriously saved at the age of six just doesn't measure up, right, to unshackled, but it's the same essence of living life for what I want without regard to what God wants. We need a rescuer. Some of you do have gory details and really wouldn't want to and and need not share all the details of the sinful lifestyle you lived The summary is here for you to be able to characterize your life before God as pursuing all kinds of other things that don't satisfy and realizing there was a gaping hole in your life that only God could meet. What's your chapter one? From what condition were you rescued? Well, then we move quickly to chapter two. We move from before God saved me to how God saved me. And we see how it unfolds in our text. First, borrowing a point from last week's sermon, we see again this divine initiative. In verse 3, the text is clear. Now, as he went on his way, Saul has a purpose. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. He's got the permissions lined up. He's got a goal in mind as he goes his way, self-righteously, rejecting Jesus, willing to murder. Saul had a plan, but God was about to reveal his. And on his way, Saul is assaulted by light. Assaulted by light because we're told it, it knocks him to the ground. I don't know if that's a physical reaction or what happens, but there is is a preemptive strike by the grace of God in this glorious light that immediately humbles Saul. His unbelief, his evil intent are arrested by this divine intervention of God. So divine initiative is part of the story. When you start writing chapter two of your story, how God saved you, you start thinking about the times that God was intervening in your life. You were on your way, but God had his way that he was going to impose. And he gave you that college friend or roommate. He led you perhaps through your spouse, some church that you were invited to, there was something going on that you were going your way but had no idea God had his way that he was going to interject into your life. It's divine initiative. As he went on his way, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Second, see this question is designed to bring about conviction of sin. Conviction is what provokes repentance. We feel the guilt of our sin. 
It's offense against God. And welling up within us is this distaste for it, this hatred of it. And we want to turn away from it. That's repentance. That's the goal of conviction. Saul, why are you sinning in this way? Why are you rejecting? Why are you rebelling? It's the conviction of sin. Verse 5. And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, there's much to think on here as Jesus relates to his church so intimately that his words are, you are persecuting me when you persecute my people. When you persecute the body of Christ, you are persecuting the whole of which Jesus is the head. When Saul adds details telling his own story later in the book of Acts, He adds a question at this point in the story. So he says, who are you, Lord? And he hears, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in later accounts, Saul adds this responsive question. What shall I do? And what we see that in the story of how God saves us, it starts with God's initiative, God's grace in our lives preemptively. We feel the conviction of sin, and then there is this yielding to Jesus. Who are you? It's Jesus. He has an encounter with the risen Christ. And in that encounter, he yields himself to Jesus. Again, if the conviction of sin is the essence of repentance, here in this yielding to Jesus is the essence of belief. Or, or faith, we trust in Jesus. So in familiar texts that speak of belief, John 3.16, whoever believes on him will have everlasting life. That belief is here in our text. As he encounters Jesus and says, you are Lord, what do you need from me? What do you want? I surrender. I trust you. I treasure you. You are the authority. You are the Lord. And in this yielding, we have an expression of faith and the beginning of seeing Jesus for who he is. While on his way to stop those who are on the way of following Jesus, Saul jumps paths. Having seen Jesus, he's no longer on his way, he's on the way. It's conversion. He's been saved, he's been rescued. And so having seen this conversion, we need to ask ourselves, have I been converted? Have I seen Jesus for who he is. Now, you may not have seen a face and heard the audible voice as in our story. It is an incredible story, somewhat unique. But Saul would go on to write in a letter to the Corinthian church that that everybody has the same story of light in their conversion. It may not be a blinding light that is visible to everyone around us, but he says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the light that shines from the face of Jesus has pierced our darkness so that we might see him, love him, believe in him. So now you need to add chapter 2 to your conversion story. It's probably not hard to think of what you were before you came to faith in Christ. This text may help you add some substance to that chapter, highlighting that self-righteousness, I'm good enough, and I'm going after what I want, I don't need Jesus. In some way, that's your chapter one. 
Do you have a chapter two? And if so, how would you share that with someone? Learn from this story as you think on your chapter two and write that out so that you're ready in in a couple of minutes, in a few sentences to cover those main ideas, to unfold how it was of God and it was by his grace that I saw my sin. And in that one sentence, you've covered the divine initiative of God's grace and conviction of sin. And then what next? I realized I needed Jesus. His perfect record of righteousness was way better than my record of sin. And I trusted that his work was good enough for me. And now we've pulled our faith in Jesus into this account. It's not complicated, but it's powerful. It's the gospel on display in one story of conversion, yours. So how did God save you? Hammer out the details of your story and be ready with it. In that story of God's initiative, you might have the language of a Sunday school teacher, a parent, a friend, who kept bombarding you with the truth. And, oh, you didn't want to hear it for a long time, but eventually you now see that that was God's grace again and again hammering into your life. Later, in Paul's own recounting of this story, he would also give us that detail of the account where the where Jesus, appearing to Saul, says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, grace has been bombarding your life. It was there, and you kept resisting it and resisting it, but ultimately you could not. It was that conviction. You might have a story of kicking against the truth, not wanting to hear it, as God was being merciful to show you that truth. Who was God using to speak truth to you? Sometimes we forget how common our salvation story was. We just kind of let it roll. Some Sunday school teacher told me, not realizing that your eternal destiny was set on a different trajectory because of some faithful old man that was teaching a class. Somebody's life could be transformed and repurposed this week because you simply say in three or four sentences what you were before Christ, how you were saved, and what that's meant for you since. You You don't need a manuscript of pages of data here. That may happen as that relationship with the unbeliever builds and you're able to sit down and talk more and more and dialogue. But we should be able to pretty briefly tell how the good news changed my life. When somebody says, what is Christianity? I don't even know what you mean. Well, here's what it means. You see, I I used to be living in such a way that I I was clamoring for money or sex or relationships or acceptance from people. I just thought life was to live however you wanted. I thought I was a good person. But by the grace of God, I was convicted to realize I don't measure up to God's standard of holiness. I'm not good enough for God, for heaven. I needed to be rescued from myself and my sin and the wrath of God on it. God saved me. So now my life might look a little different. You might think I look a little weird. I'm not trying to be weird. Just trying to live in a way that pleases God. And now in a minute and a half, you've told the story of conversion. Is there more you can say? Yes. But you've told how the gospel transforms lives. Well, now we turn to chapter three. One, before God saved me. Chapter two, how God saved me. Chapter three, after God saved me. What do we see in the text? For Saul, of course, it would be the rest of the book of Acts. That's the story of after God saved him. 
But I think there's some details in our story just in this chapter that would help us understand our chapter three. Because conversion is this radical change, the Bible uses the language of being a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5. We're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In the language of our society today, especially, this is the language of identity. It's a big word. It's a common word. It's a word being used to kind of explain the way a lot of the world is thinking. So don't be afraid to take that word and unfold life in Christ, a new identity as a new creature in Christ. Remember, our story began with identity. Saul is breathing out threats and murder against somebody with an identification, the disciples of the Lord. And in chapter, one, or chapter 9, verse 2, it's these men and women of the way. They clearly have an identity. So something of chapter 3, after God saves me, is about your identity. We see first identification with Christ. After this beautiful encounter with Ananias, who kind of helps Saul out when likely no one else was going to. They're scared to death of the guy. They know what he breathes out and murmurs about. And so nobody wants to get close to him. But Ananias, in obedience, does. And God uses him to begin the third chapter for Saul, life after God had saved him. And what we see in verse 18 as he receives the Holy Spirit, these scales fell from his eyes, as it were, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. We saw it last week with the Ethiopian eunuch. Now we're seeing it in the conversion of Saul. The simple step of publicly identifying with Christ, telling all who do see it, I'm with him. That's what baptism does. It doesn't save us. It doesn't put the, the ribbon on our salvation and kind of tie it off and make sure it happens. It is an identification with Jesus Christ. So he rose and he was baptized. Maybe some of you have put faith in Christ and have never been baptized. Don't overthink this. Simply recognize the Bible says, make it public. Announce your discipleship to everyone by being publicly baptized. Number two, there was identification with the church. After he rose and was baptized, he took food and was strengthened. That's a, that's a beautiful verse unfolding hospitality in the life of Ananias. I know at times we can feel like even providing a meal is so little. I, I want to help them in their heart. I want to fix them. I want to solve their problems. But you know you can't but God may use you to just strengthen them physically with food. So that's right there in the narrative. And while it's not one of the points in our sermon, see it there and appreciate that. This big spiritual work is happening, and yet there's also a physical body there that needs strengthening. And Ananias is ready to do that. This is why the Gospels would tell us we can give even a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. It is serving the big picture. So love hospitality and do it willingly. Because it's happening side by side with all that spiritual stuff we say we're so concerned about. Let's run them right along each other and let God use them and intermingle them as he sees fit. What we see here in the text is they took food to strengthen Saul. And then the next phrase, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. He identified with the church. He immediately understood that chapter three, life after God has saved me, is a life that engages with other believers. 
Now, practically speaking, that's more often than not the local congregation you choose to gather with. But think of the number of believers that you're friends with around Kansas City alone. And by social media and the web, friends across the country and around the world. All of that comes into play here. Because all of that body of Christ is good for us. It's, it's our place of belonging. It's our identification. But just note, at the very least, by observation from the text, that those days that were passed were with real people that were in his life right then. Damascus. So while not forgetting about the broader church around the city and around the world, there is a local group of people that are designed to be a help to you and you a help to them. And it makes up a lot of chapter three in your story, my life after God saved me. It's not a solo mission of be as good as I can for as long as I can and do as much for the kingdom as I can. Appreciate your heart in that. We should want to do all we can for the kingdom, but it's not something we do alone. Not even Saul or Paul, the great apostle. He's not alone now, and he won't be alone in all of his missionary travels. He had this entourage of people. Read Romans 16. Read the end of some of the epistles where he begins to list people again and again, who were with him and who helped him and who served with him. Identification with the church is essential to the success of your Christian life. It makes up chapter three. Identification with Christ, identification with the church, and third, identification with God's purpose. Verse 20 tells us, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying what we sang earlier, Jesus is the Son of God. And by that, we don't mean one of many sons. There are plenty of religions and worldviews that say we too are sons of God like Jesus was. But that's not true, because when Jesus says he's Son of God, he's saying, much like my son would say he's a son of Adam, He's the same essence in the DNA. There's a genetics that are the same. Jesus, as the Son of God, is the sameness with the Father. And he would say that, I and my Father are one. The doctrine of the Trinity is, is hard for our minds to, to, to grasp. But by faith, we recognize that title of Son of God as God in the flesh, to take our place and to accomplish our redemption. This was his message, the name of Jesus. That's what Ananias was told. Verse 16, the Lord told Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Well, what's the name have to do with the suffering? Well, the name is the dividing point. Verse 15, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine, God says, to carry my name. God could have taken Saul, been converted, right? Like the song Away in a Manger, he's now fit for heaven to live with God there. But that's not the plan of God. The plan is Saul would keep living and breathing. Oh, he's going to survive some shipwrecks and probably a few gasps at breathing, being underwater and grabbing on the shipwreck parts and floating over to the island. At another point, he's stoned outside of Lystra or Derby or one of those places, probably gasping for his last breath. But God kept saying, you're going to keep breathing. And here's the reason why. Because you're to carry the name of Jesus, the great converter, the great repurposer, the great savior, wherever you go. So if you make it out of this service and get on with lunch and press on into the week, 
I know why. Because you're supposed to bear the name of Jesus wherever you go. So if we're not making Jesus known through our story of conversion, through the way that we live, our good works glorifying our Father, the way we speak of an articulate gospel, then why are we here? What are we doing? We've forgotten our purpose. Chapter 3, we say, I identify with Christ in baptism. I identify with the church. It's advancing the gospel cause. That's my purpose. If I'm with Christ in his church, we're advancing. Mark those words. Carry my name. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So how do you write chapter 3? If you have the opportunity to tell your story this week, what does chapter 3 look like? Do you need to be baptized? Do you need to engage more meaningfully with believers? Do you need to answer the question, what, what, what is your contribution? What is your gifting for the good of the church? It's there. You have it. What is it? How are you telling the story of life after God saved you in the body of Christ? You might speak of how God's changed your desires. You might kind of borrow from chapter one. I used to think it was all about this, but now I have this purpose. It might help you think through, you know, the, the parenting issues this week that seem kind of mundane and here we go again and got to curb this behavior. And it might help you see, wait a minute, I live and breathe and I parent because I carry the name of Jesus. I need to show them Jesus more than I need to get their manners up to par or their behavior acceptable to me. What is my purpose? Is, is chapter three a little weak in our book because we thought it was just kind of like live out my days doing good things and fellowship with God's church and it's all enjoyable. Well, it, it is. It should be. I, I hope you're sensing enjoyment in the Christian life, but it's more than that. It's this identification with a purpose, a driving purpose of carrying Jesus' name. You might carry that name to the family reunion to the workplace, gathering, to the picnics, to whatever it may be. The, the summer will have all kinds of opportunities for you to carry that name. Realize that chapter three is an ongoing story. You're still writing that chapter. So if it's kind of been a weak start to chapter three, maybe it's been a rough couple of weeks or months doesn't look like a lot of identifying with Jesus and his church and his cause. Well, continue writing chapter three and write a paragraph today that says something like, but after encountering Acts chapter nine, God showed me that I'm a chosen instrument in his hand to carry his name. So I need to get on track. I need to encounter again that Christ who saved me and set me on a course of serving him. Take heart, friends. This story of conversion isn't just a story that you write. It's God telling his story of grace in your story of conversion. Learn to tell your story. But anchor it to the Bible outline that we see here in Acts chapter 9. Before God saved me, how God saved me, and after God saved me. John Newton loved to magnify the grace of God in his conversion. He speaks of it often. For 40 years, he lived life for himself, indulging in all forms of imaginable immorality, adding to that the horror of the slave trade, which is well documented for us to understand in all of its gruesome description of evil. 
He's converted by the grace of God, and he lives the next 40 years marveling at grace so amazing that it could save a wretch like he was. You know the kind of words he would use. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. There was a time when grace had to teach my heart to fear. But then that grace, my fears relieved. It's amazing, grace. And it's there in your bulletin. But in his last days, he's visited by an old friend. And Newton, barely able to speak, in a sense, on his deathbed, said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. One, that I am a great sinner, and two, that Christ is a great savior. Newton squeezed our three chapters into two. I was a great sinner, Christ was a great savior. If that works for you, use it. Plagiarize that one. That's, that's the gospel. It's your story to tell. You must tell your conversion story because it's the gospel story. May God help us to carry the name of Jesus as we go from this place. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for our salvation. Thank you for recording the salvation of Saul of Tarsus, public enemy number one, converted and repurposed to the apostle, to the Gentiles. May we hear his words as we recited them earlier, that this saying is trustworthy and faithful, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which we were. And now by your amazing grace, you have freed us from sin, justified us by the righteousness, not our own, but Christ's, and called us to a life of kingdom advance that will usher us into an eternity of joy in your presence. Keep us faithful and persevering to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.